0: Welcome back to the 97th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two talking about China, its growing power, and its religious persecution, and one talking about how the commercial real estate market in America, just like China, may actually be headed for a downward spiral. And, of course, we'll end today with our Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, where will China strike next? We've seen them strengthen their ties in Africa, South and Central America, as well as the Middle East now. Is China's growing prestige on the world stage alarming to anyone else? I mean, to me, it's it's a little scary, personally, but does anybody else see it and think, oh, shoot, they are coming for our title. They're trying to be the peaceman, like we have been for a long time. They're trying to have the yuan be the main currency that everybody trades in. And that's a little bit alarming to me. But, you know, there are some other people who may think it's just part of the natural cycle of global politics. And wherever you line up on that scale... Throw it down in the comment section. I want to see and hear what you guys have to think or have to say. Now, let's jump into our first article. This one comes from New York Post. The U.S. hands China the Middle East at its own peril. So, if you aren't fully informed, or at least you're not keeping up with the news, China helped broker a a negotiation, a formal agreement to keep talking between Iran and Saudi Arabia and them stepping in as a peacemaker not just trying to stir the pot like we kind of perceive China to do in certain situations but actually stepping up saying yes we can actually bring these two guys together we can build strategic alliances in the area we can be the leader who brings peace it's a big slight It's a big slap in the face of America who, as we would like to pretend as America over the last few decades, that we've been the big peacemaker. We've been the one stabilizing the world, making sure that people get along, making sure other nations understand the reality of the situation on the ground, and getting them to come to the table and actually start working with people that they wouldn't necessarily want to on their own. And now we see China doing it, stepping up, being this this peacemaker. And it is scary to a lot of the realist global politics people because they're looking and saying, wow, our prestige has fallen so much that we couldn't even get Iran and Saudi Arabia to the table, even though they both have a strong interest in protecting the value of oil and things of this nature. And let's be clear, they are the two heads of two different warring sides in the Middle East. But the fact that we couldn't even get them to the table and China could, and the fact that China is talking about creating a sit down with Ukraine and Russia, they are really stepping up trying to show that, hey, we could be a hegemon too. We can ensure that the world operates smoothly if you give us the chance. And that's scary. and Or at least that's scary to a lot of people. And this article comes from that realist worldview that, hey, you know, there's going to be a hegemon It's all about power on the world stage, and the U.S. is losing it. So we'll start with the framing the author gives here. Quote On Sunday, just days after Saudi Aramco, the national oil producer in Saudi Arabia, publicized a multi billion dollar investment in China's petrochemical industry, Saudi Arabia and its OPEC plus partners announced a surprise cut to oil production. Alongside the recent China-brokered agreement for Iran and Saudi Arabia to resume diplomatic ties, these developments typify an ongoing transition. America is stepping back, and China is stepping up in the Middle East. End quote. And what they're also pointing out here is that the state industries, you have uh, the petrochemical industry in China and Saudi Aramco in Saudi Arabia, They're starting to invest in one another, and there's even been whispers, talks that they will trade their oil not in U.S. dollars in the future, and if that's the case, that is the destruction of the petrodollar, and the U.S. cannot survive that, or at least it will be a very, very painful experience, but these sort of steps are scary, and if you're a person who's been looking at the Middle East and been Observing the Middle East for a long time, it's a very complex region. There are lots of factors here. It's not as simple as saying, oh, China's stepping in and they're solving everything. I mean, it doesn't actually say there's peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran. It doesn't say that they're going to start trading the largest volumes of oil and goods and everything like this. No. The agreement was just to make sure that their diplomatic ties are back in place, that they're actually having an open dialogue. But that's still something. And when you consider the fact that America wasn't able to do that, I know I've said it twice now, but America wasn't able to do that, and China was, it's a little bit of a scary message. And then they're also cutting production because of high inflation, trying to make sure that they can keep oil prices stable, and they can keep making their profits. And they're investing in China's petrochemical industry, saying, hey, maybe we want to buy some oil from you, or we want to refine it where you are rather than going to the U.S. for their natural gas or going to Russia for their natural gas. So it's a building up of this alliance, and it is a bit scary. But, you know, the author wants to focus more on how the U.S. has failed, not how scary China is. So let's take a step back and talk about that. So there's really been a change in U.S. foreign policy. Quote, over a period of decades, the United States has spilt significant blood, treasure, and diplomatic resources to maintain regional stability, often with results deemed unsatisfying. As Chinese powers catapulted to new highs over the last 15 years, administrations beginning with Barack Obama's began calling for a reorientation of U.S. foreign policy. Deep engagement in the Middle East was, the argument goes, no longer worth the cost. American resources could have been better put into the Indo-Pacific. Second, opponents of the Middle East engagement claim fracking was going to allow America to rely on North American petrochemical production. And the transition to carbon-neutral energy is reducing U.S. reliance on fossil fuels anyway. End quote. So there's a two-stage argument there, and I want to address the last one first. They're saying that as we are growing, as we are developing our own natural gas industry, fracking industry, we are going to become less reliant on Saudi Arabia, one of the largest exporters, and OPEC+, and we don't necessarily have to worry about keeping a good relationship with them, because we're also going to have our own renewable energy system that allows us to thrive and survive. And while that all sounds very idealistic, and there may be actually be some truth to it, we may be able to be energy independent. That doesn't mean that we should stop communicating and intricately being involved with Saudi Arabia, one of the strongest powers in the Middle East. The Middle East is in the center between Asia, Africa, and Europe, meaning most major infrastructure projects from Asia to Africa, Africa to Europe, Europe to Asia, is most likely to involve one or two Middle Eastern states. This is something that, as America, we don't necessarily think about, or at least the average American doesn't think about. The foreign policy agents, of course, they think about it. This is quite literally their job. But it is in the Middle of growing superpowers everywhere. You have South Africa growing in power in Africa. You have some of the smaller African nations who are stepping up on the world stage. You have China, India, Pakistan growing in Asia. And then you have, of course, the old powers in the West in Europe. So anything that goes on, any sort of infrastructure project is probably going to have to go through the Middle East. Meaning It is very strategically important. It is also very unstable. And that's why the U.S. has stepped in, because we want to make sure that we have control over the Persian Gulf, where a lot of trade goes through past India, uh, around Egypt, and then up to Europe. So you can see how this is a very geopolitically strong location, and there are lots of strong arguments to be involved there not just, hey, you know, we can produce our own oil, we don't have to rely on Saudi Arabia for oil, you know, this is, it's more in-depth than that. And the the first point, that it's no longer worth the cost, well, I'm I'm sorry to tell you this, but I believe 80% of trade that goes to Europe from China goes through the Persian Gulf, and if I'm Wrong on that statistic, please check me. But it is strategically important to not just ourselves, but also our allies. And if our allies look and say, oh, America is not actually keeping their end of the deal, they're not protecting us, they're not ensuring safe waters for everybody to travel, they're allowing for the Middle East to become unstable, then they're going to turn to somebody else who can guarantee that the Middle East is going to be stable, and that they don't lose some of the shipments of their goods. And, of course, you may be thinking, well, why would Saudi Arabia being stable matter? Why would Iran being stable matter? Because at the end of the day, if the area is unstable and one of those regimes, one of those countries collapses, and the people are desperate, they may start pirating, like some countries in South Africa, in the Indo-Pacific, And they may start pirating some of the ships and taking them hostage and taking all the consumer goods. So even though it's a long shot, stability means economic prosperity. And economic prosperity makes the West happy, let's just be honest. So you can see it's a very complex issue. And I'm sure if a foreign policy expert is listening to me, they could probably point out one or two, three, maybe five holes in my argument and thought, processes that I have not actually gone through but this is just my first observation and trying to take a little bit more of a realist worldview on why this is actually important and there's one closing quote that I really want to pull out from this article because I think it highlights the overall theme that I didn't necessarily fully encapsulate in my comments quote Beijing control over Middle Eastern energy will increase China's leverage over America's Indo-Pacific and European allies and partners. Like I was just describing, we want to make sure that we keep those allyships strong. Quote, Chinese hegemony in the region, moreover, will breed even far greater instability with global implications. Continued deep American engagement in the Middle East is a prerequisite for a counter for countering an increasingly assertive and aggressive People's Republic of China end quote. And I think they have a good point there. And I, I will move on from this topic because I feel like we covered it pretty thoroughly, or at least we had a good discussion. but I do want to push back a little bit. So obviously, we've had this whole perspective that I've been going with, which is the realist worldview. And at the end of the day, we need to keep our interest locked in in the Middle East. We need to make sure that we're giving all the money to Saudi Arabia so they can bomb Yemen. And there's the other point of view, which is this could be very well a perspective that is encouraging that we keep giving military funding to all of our allies there, that we have a strong military presence, that we keep spending all these money on large contracts, And rather than being a truly realist worldview where this is how it has to be, it's more of a, well, this is the reality on the ground, we should act this way, but also my corporate backers, they're going to get a little bit of uh, contract money thrown their way to make sure that the military presence and everybody, the contractors that go along with it, are still involved in the Middle East. So there is an argument to be made that backing off and allowing for these countries to independently come to their own conclusions where they're going to trade freely, where they're going to feel that they can build their own alliances and interact on the world stage in a more fair and less hostile way will actually encourage the area to thrive and prosper. So that's more of a liberal worldview. And, you know, we tried that with China. And the, the only reason I don't really love that is because We had the idea that with China, hey, we are going to just trade the living heck out with you. We are going to bring you the capitalist system, and we are going to allow you to come into the new world of the economic order through lots of trade and manufacturing, and you're going to leave behind your authoritarian ways. And it turns out, once the economy was spurred, then they went back to their authoritarian ways, so just because free trade has worked before and it has allowed different areas and regions to prosper, it doesn't mean it's the solution going forward. And that's why I stick more to the realist worldview. And I'm not saying it's an actual that it's actually real. It's the only one that's rational. What I'm saying is the realist worldview in geopolitics is it's a power game. The people that have the most power, the ones that wield the biggest stick, are going to be very effective. And it's all about... Deterring your enemies with, not necessarily shows of force, but showing, hey, we're not going to just sit by and let you do this, that, or the other. We're going to make sure that you know we're here and you understand the realities on the ground. All right, so let's jump to our second article, still about China, from the Wall Street Journal. Chinese church group flies to U.S. after three years in self-exile. So let's give a little bit of background so you actually know what's going on here. A congregation of Chinese Christians, quote, seeking asylum abroad, is giving to, traveling to the U.S. with plans to resettle permanently, capping a three-year quest for a new home outside China that has impede, been impeded by repeated legal setbacks and police detention. The 63 members of the Shenzhen Holy Reformed Church who were detained in Thailand last week for visa violations, have departed the Southeast Asian country for the U.S., a spokesperson for the United Nations Refugee Agency and Thai police officials told the Wall Street Journal on Friday. End quote. And this is a big move. So they've they've been on the run, or I say on the run. They've been on the move for practically three years. They left China because they felt that they were being persecuted. And in China, if you didn't know, it's not necessarily saying they don't allow religion whatsoever, but they're not necessarily fans. They don't want someone to come in the way or something, a God, Jesus, um, Allah, any sort of deity, they don't want them to come in the way of loving the government. The government looks out for you. No, it's not God above who, you know, died for your sins and is allowing you to live on this beautiful earth. It's no, no, we're the Chinese Communist Party. We're providing for you. We are the ultimate power. There is nothing above us. That's how authoritarian regimes work. So they've been persecuting different religious groups. Think about the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. They have been persecuted and made in these re-education camps to leave behind their faith as their guiding principles and rely more on the state. And the power of the state. So you can see how China's slowly trying to get rid of all these different religious groups. And this group felt, hey, we're being persecuted in Xinjiang, sorry, in Shenzhen, a very large city in the south of China. So they decided to flee. And I think their journey is actually pretty pretty interesting here. And we also have a little bit more background about China's overall move. So I'll read this quote for you. Quote, under President Xi Jinping, the Communist Party has tightened control over all aspects of society, from business to religion, and suppressed dissent with growing vigor, a trend that has pushed more than ordinary Chinese to leave the country. The United Nations Refugee Agency counted more than 118,000 asylum seekers from China in 2021, the most recent year for which complete data is available, up from... 15,362 in 2012, the year Mr. Xi took power. The Shenzhen Church's meandering journey has encompassed a curtailing of religious freedom in China under Mr. Xi. It started with an escape three years ago from the church's former base in the southern Chinese city of Shenzhen to South Korea, the South Korean island of Jeju. So, And if I'm mispronouncing anything, I am extremely sorry. But let's move on. So the South Korean island of Jeju is a place that allows Chinese dissidents to leave China and just stay there without a long, hard visa process. And they were trying to apply for asylum and trying to get to the United States. And eventually, they had to leave. So they decided to go to Thailand. And the the problem with Thailand here is, the fact that they have a very open extradition policy with China. Very often they send different refugees or dissidents back to China of China requests. In this case, and why I brought up this story, is because the the U.S. interceded. There were two aid workers who work for a group that's trying to relocate this church to Texas. And the difficult part was, oh, we can relocate you, but it's going to be hard to relocate everybody at the same time. But eventually they were able to make it work. They're going to be in a small town about two hours outside of Dallas. And this is the beauty of America. Even if we are losing a little bit of our prowess on the foreign policy side, on the world stage, we still have independent actors, independent activists. We have these support groups that are willing to go out. And if they see a problem in the world, they're willing to change it. They're willing to bring freedom to these other countries. And I know it may be a little bit hypocritical and it may just be because this is a church group and churches outreach all the time and they want to be compassionate. Maybe that's just why this is happening. But it's still beautiful. And I think that's something we can still offer the world because the last article shows or highlights the U.S. hegemony may be in jeopardy. We may be losing our power as a nation on the worldwide, international scale. But we still have people and organizations that can exert some power on the international stage, they can, at the end of the day, go out there and affect change in the world and make sure that the authoritarian regime in China doesn't just get their way and get to suppress the speech and the ideas of these people. And I think that's beautiful. And I think at the end of the day, if we're still going to spread freedom after we're not the hegemony, the hegemon of the world, then that's exactly how we're going to do it. And that's why I wanted to bring up this article. I didn't want it to be all doom and gloom. At the end of the day, we can affect change. You can affect change. You just have to want it bad enough and have a vision and plan on how to get there and do it. All right, enough with platitudes, enough with cliches. Let's jump to our last article. This one comes from USA Today. Commercial real estate is headed for a crisis worse than 2008. Morgan Stanley analyst says. I know, not a really flashy headline whatsoever, definitely not. Doomsday, doom and gloom, it's going to be worse than 2008. But they do have a little bit of information, of course, to back this up, otherwise they wouldn't be writing the article. And there's a, a bellwether, a industry, a different group, that is kind of showing the path forward through this hard time when it comes to commercial real estate. Quote, in February, a PIMCO-owned office landlord defaulted on an adjustable-rate mortgage on seven office buildings in California, New York, and New Jersey, when monthly payments rose due to high interest rates. Brookfield, the largest office owner in downtown Los Angeles that month, chose to default on two buildings rather than refinance the debt due to weak demand for office space. They are a bellwether that is of what is likely to come, as more than half of the $2.9 trillion in commercial mortgages will be up for refinancing in the next couple years, according to Morgan Stanley, end quote. And you may be thinking, hey, well, okay, first off, refinancing, why does that matter? Oh, I mean, at the end of the day, can they not just get another loan or, you know, adjust the rates a little bit? or say, hey, we, we want to make sure that this is a fixed rate so it doesn't go any higher. And I realize I'm maybe jumping the gun a little bit. If you're a person who has bought real estate before or has taken out a loan, you get where I'm coming from. You understand why this is an issue. But if you're one of the younger viewers, which is who I'm trying to really speak to, trying to make sure that you have a little bit of understanding what's going on, the fact that these are going to be up for refinancing here soon and there's not a lot of demand for office space is dangerous because you've seen what inflation is doing. You see that it's running around 7% when adjusted. So at the end of the day, these people that are leasing out these office building spaces or leasing out the land where they have these office buildings, they are not going to want to go through the refinancing process and lock in a higher rate of interest on their, their loans. And especially, that's the case, when there's not a lot of demand for office space. Now, if there was a huge demand for office space and the interest rates were going up, then they may be willing to refinance. They'll take the high interest rates, but they'll make it go just a little bit longer if possible, or they'll make it even shorter, realizing, hey, demand is really strong right now. We can actually pay off the high interest on those loans, but that's not the case COVID, the Zoom era, the remote working era has changed a lot. A lot of companies are cutting down on their leasing costs by saying, hey, we're going to have one small office where the main team, the C-suite comes in and then everybody can work from home, Zoom in and communicate through email, Slack, all these other things. So there's not a lot of demand for large amounts of office space. And at the end of the day... We have had a commercial real estate boom over the last 10 years, maybe even two decades, where a lot of people have been buying up prime real estate in these large cities, and they've been converting them or building new office buildings. And, of course, there has been some residential booms in these large cities, too. But a lot of people in the late 90s, early 2000s, started to relocate. This new millennial generation relocated to these big cities, And they started working out of these larger corporations. And now that, like I said, you have a remote worker environment, you have people that don't want to drive in that hour through L.A. traffic, they are staying home and they are enjoying their time at home. Meaning, at the end of the day, if they're more productive there, why would we want to send them into the office anyway? So these companies don't really have an incentive to buy office space. And there are other warning signs here that the analyst really wants to point out. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them up because it is more than just the fact that people don't need office space. There's a little bit more to it. Quote, the commercial real estate market was dealing with a host of challenges, including dwindling demand for office spaces brought on by remote work, increased maintenance costs, and climbing interest rates. With small and medium-sized banks accounting for 80%, of commercial real estate lending, the situation might soon get worse, says experts. Commercial property prices could fall as much as 40%, rivaling the decline during the 2008 financial crisis, forecasts Morgan Stanley analysts. These kinds of challenges can hurt not only the real estate industry, but also business communities related to it, says Schlatt. End quote. And the reason the medium and small-sized banks is very important is because there has been a discussion about after Silicon Valley Bank failed and Signature Bank failed, there was a conversation about what banks are actually going to be insured. If it's the big banks that the U.S. is reliant on, then, okay, we'll bail them out. But the FDIC and the Jerome Powell, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, they have not come out and said, we will insure medium and small size banks too. And since 80% of the lending comes through them for these commercial real estate buildings, you can see where the issue is. If there's a fear of default, people aren't going to, one, take out loans from those banks and want to keep buying commercial real estate, so that's going to lower prices. But also if one of those banks fails, then the people that have these commercial real estate buildings, they won't actually be able to hold on to that building because some other company is probably going to buy up the assets of this other bank. A larger one's going to come in, and then they'll force the person to refinance under new terms, or they'll just outright lose the ability to manage that building. So you can see how this is a mounting crisis and how it could be, even worse than people are necessarily imagining on the surface. It's not just about the defaulting loans. It's the possibility that these small lenders won't be able to survive and actually give out money to keep these commercial real estate buildings going and you know, in good condition. And then, if that's the case, the price falls even further, and you can see how it's a downward spiral. But, you know, there is a solution, or at least there's one that is proposed here. Quote, office to residential conversion have been a hot topic of discussion ever since the pandemic emptied out office buildings. State and local officials can help developers stuck with languishing properties while addressing affordable housing challenges in cities by fast tracking zone changing required for these conversions, say experts experts. Cities like New York and San Francisco are jewels of urban landscape and nobody benefits when the urban centers suffer, says Grinness, and quote, and so there's a call to action with respect to governments, private capital, and that there may be to some extent regulators and legislators to ensure that the vibrancy of these cities continue, end quote. So what they're suggesting here is, hey, we're going to speed up the process of redistricting. We're going to make That possible that these commercial real estate areas, these giant office spaces that aren't being used, are turned into maybe low-cost housing, maybe even expensive housing in some areas. And this could be one area. Reutilize, this is one solution, reutilize the area, the building, and turn it into something that is actually hot right now and in demand. And then by that logic, if the commercial real estate keeps going up, you know, if it keeps on the uptick after the crash, then these areas could redistrict again and convert these areas back into commercial real estate if they were able to get all the tenants to get out of the building. That, you know, that last part's a long shot, but you know, there are solutions here. And even if the crisis is still mounting, that doesn't mean at the end of the day these buildings are going to go abandoned and these cities are going to fall apart. Because these legislators, these regulators, they realize we need a use for these buildings. We can't just have these empty buildings not adding value to our city because they're taking up precious land, especially in large cities where land is extremely valuable. And if it's unused, it's a waste. And then it becomes ugly because people don't have the there's no money coming in from the building. If they're not getting any rent from people using the offices, they're not going to keep the building in good condition. It's going to look bad then the property value around it goes down. So the cities understand that something needs to be done and needs to be done fast. So we'll see if this is a solution, if turning them into residential areas will actually help at all. Maybe it won't, but at least they're trying to do something. And at least there is a solution on the table when it comes to this. And that's at least reassuring that there is a possible way forward That doesn't have to end with a large percentage of the private equity or private commercial real estate firms going under. All right. I know that was a little bit long-winded, and we did end on a positive note on that story, but we're going to end on an even bigger positive. This is our daily delight from My Modern Met. The French bulldog is so good at skateboarding, he's being called Tony Dog. So almost... Everyone on the internet has seen a dog riding a skateboard, but probably not like this. Quote, Cabbage, aka Bai Kai, is a white French bulldog who has mem- mesmerized the internet by skating like an absolute pro. This is more than just a cute pup posing on a skateboard. Cabbage fully seems to understand how to push off, keep his balance, make turns, and even skate down stairs. It's no wonder that some are calling him Tony Dog. And, you know, honestly, it's not that hard of a bar to pass, but this dog is better than me, and I'm, I'm kind of jealous. Quote, while Cabbage and I are having fun, I want to bring laughter to others too, Xiao shares. Xiao's his owner, by the way. Quote, people live very stressful lives now, and it would be nice if we could share our happiness. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of Cabbage riding the skateboard or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a link to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, Friday when it goes live. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.